Thank you. What do you guys think? So good, right? So good. Oh, my gosh. So we're taking a look at Leviticus today, believe it or not. Uh, So now, just like Revelation last week, Leviticus is another one of those books that gets, um, let's say, shoved to the slide slightly in Christianity. And I get it. It makes sense, right? I mean, so like when people talk about reading through the Bible, one of the common pieces of advice that they give people is don't read front to back. Because what do you got? You got these lovely stories in Genesis and then, oh, excellent stories in Exodus. You're going great, first two books. And then you hit Leviticus and, yeah. You get dry, boring stuff and then you just give up on reading the Bible altogether. So it's not an uncommon piece of advice of don't go through the Bible in order. Start some, do some other way through it. Because what is Leviticus? I mean, it's laws and regulations and rules. And moreover, us Christians don't think we really need to follow any of them. So it's not only laws and rules, it's laws and rules that we think are irrelevant. So, yeah, not the most fun reading ever. Uh, And then, just throw on top of that, preachers don't want to touch this either because it's boring. And frankly, we don't know what to do with it either. So... uh, But here's an interesting tidbit. So, this very book that us Christians so so desperately avoid, our Jewish cousins, when they're teaching their children in religious education, what is the first book that they teach their kids? Leviticus. Interesting. Interesting. Now, not the stories about Adam and Eve, nor Noah's Ark. No, it's the book of Leviticus. And so, what do we make of this? Right, okay. So I guess you could make of it that they're just, I don't know, obsessively legalistic and only care about indoctrinating people. But I'm not down for that. I don't know about y'all, but I'm not down with that. So... If we're not going to just write them off as terribly misguided, then we need to be open to the option that perhaps they have figured out something about what it means to follow God that we have completely missed through this very book that we avoid. Maybe we can learn what it means to follow God from them. So here's my goal today. It's a very straightforward one. One, figure out what incarnation is going on here in this passage. And second, try and figure out is there anything we can get from it? Is that fair? Straightforward enough? So it makes sense that people tend to avoid Leviticus. Do, do we have any lawyers here? Good. Okay. So you, you don't sit down to read the Revised Code of Washington. Just for fun. Just letting you know. And you don't do that with an ancient law book either, right? It is uh, it is not a fun thing to go and just read through laws telling you what you can and can't do. But that does not mean that they are not important or 
that they have something that they can teach us, right? And so, I mean, because what are laws? Uh, Rules, yes, but fundamentally laws are concretizations of values. They're values brought together in this solidified, tangible form. And because, you know, laws are both descriptive and prescriptive. They both show us, they both reflect the values that society holds. And they teach us those very values. And so, for example, why do we not assault somebody? Why is that illegal? Because we hold values about um, health and not violating others' bodily integrity and not doing things to others against their will and not uh, causing bloodshed. We have all these values that are wrapped up in this reason that we have this law banning assault. And so this is part of our job today of trying to look at these ancient laws and figure out what are the values that are wrapped up in them? What are the values baked into these laws that we can then step back and try and ask what we can learn from it all? So let's try and wrap our heads around what's actually in that passage we heard. A little bit hard to follow. I don't know if you guys caught that part. But it's all sorts of rules and clarifications, and it ultimately boils down to this. There are three animals that you can eat. Cattle, goat, and sheep. Uh, Now, every culture has its food taboos. That's just what cultures do, is they have food taboos. Like in America, right? We have taboos. You cannot eat dogs, or cats, or horses, right? That's just something that we've learned as a culture you don't do, right? Okay, good. <laughs> I'd be a little worried. Okay, um, <laughs> and so similarly in the ancient Near East, in Israel, the Bible gave the Israelites these similar things of things they can and can't eat. And we read today about the land animals, um, but it really, all those rules and regulations really boil down to those three we mentioned. You can eat cows, sheep, and goats, which is not true. Okay, you can eat five things. Um, Also, llamas and alpacas, and hippopotamus. Now, llamas were in the Americas, so ancient Israelites knew nothing about them, so that's completely irrelevant, right? Okay. Hippopotamus. All right, you go ahead and try and bring a hippopotamus to the altar to be ritually slaughtered. Yeah. This is not going to go very well. Okay, so we'll say cows, sheep, goats. All right, and ultimately, there's a whole lot of misunderstanding that swirls around this stuff about this language of clean and unclean. So let's, let's take just a couple minutes, break some of that down, okay? So why can't Israelites eat the other animals? Now, a lot of folks hear about these animals, and it's like, oh, it's unclean or impure, so there must be something wrong with them. There must be something morally bad about eating these kinds of animals, or at least that's what they believed. But... Being unclean or clean is not this moral judgment 
in the Bible. It's purely this technical term for the temple religion. So, um, however, when we translate it into English, we use these words that unfortunately have this moral weight, like impure, right? And so think about impurity this way. Get in your way back machine, and you go back 3,000 years, let's say, and you are a poor farmer in the north of Israel. Fair enough. You eke out a living, putting your nose to the grindstone, working hard on your farm, trying to not starve to death, provide for your family, all this good stuff. All right. Over the course of your life, you accrue impurity. That's just what happens over the course of life. As the natural things of life go, you get impurity. Now, you don't do, let's say, you don't do the rituals to get rid of that. Does it matter? No, not in the slightest. It doesn't matter in the slightest because impurity is purely this thing about the temple. And so if you are just up in the north doing your thing for your whole life and you never go to the temple, it doesn't matter because it's not you have something morally wrong with you. It's something about the temple. Now, if you went down to the temple and tried to go in the temple, then there would be some issues because your impurity can threaten the holiness of the sanctuary. So there's these rituals and all this stuff. But ultimately, it doesn't matter if you're not going into the temple. And remember, you're up north, right? And the temple is way down south. So that's a, A, that's a long trek. And if you're a poor farmer, you have to stop working and and whatnot to get there. So probably not going to go very often. And so for the most part, it doesn't affect your life. But it's a moral of the story. Boil it all down. Impurity is not this moral judgment. It's just this thing about the temple religion of how it works. And so think about that. So then if animals, let's say pigs, that's the good, the common example, if Pigs are called unclean. Does that mean they're bad? No, not really. Because remember back in the creation story, God created everything and God called it all good. Yes? And so, and here's the clincher for the Bible. The Bible doesn't care if other nations, for example, eat pork. Because it's not there's something wrong with pigs. It's not there's something wrong about them being unclean. It's Israel as a nation is prohibited from it. So, one more thing to clean up, clear up. Animals are not unclean while they are alive. So, are camels unclean? Okay, the answer is yes. Yes! Are camels unclean? Wonderful. Okay, so you can ride a camel. You can ride a camel. That's fine. You can own a dog or a cat or a pig. You know, that's no problem. The uncleanness, the impurity comes when they're dead and you're handling their carcass, which makes for this really fascinating thing. This is where I find this to be so interesting because these uncleanness laws actually function to protect these animals. The, an animal's only 
unclean when it's died. And so it helps protect it from humans because it's really hard to make a mink fur coat if you can't touch dead minks. Yes? It's really hard to make a football if you cannot touch dead pigs, right? And so, with few exceptions, you cannot use animals for their parts, which is fascinating to me, because combine this with them, all those sacrificial rules that we've been talking about, right, means that these values in Leviticus embody this proto-environmentalism. It's this ancient form of animal rights, And this sense that humans cannot exploit other life just for their purposes. Because you can't kill and use the vast majority of life for your own stuff. They're protected from us killing them from eating them. They're protected from us killing them to use them. And then add on to that. The way that the three clean animals, right, cow, a goat, sheep, the way that those are butchered is fundamentally concerned about humaneness. So you want to have some meat or you want to sacrifice an animal. You don't get to do it. There's only a few people who get to do it. They are very pious and highly skilled butchers. And they have a rules, a, a method to follow, regulations to follow that make it as humane as possible to minimize the amount of pain and prevent needless suffering. And then on top of that, there's regulations for them to help prevent them from being dehumanized in the process. So I, I worked for a while at Whole Foods, all right? Their whole thing about like super humanely raised meat, right? That is like exactly what we're talking about. That Whole Foods, it's all about, right? You have humane living conditions. You have uh, not torturing animals, painless slaughtering processes, right? If you're going to kill animals for meat at all, this is how you do it ethically, And these are values that we aspire to as moderns, and these are the values that are present in these ancient Israelite laws, in these biblical laws. We do not get to exploit any life for our own purposes. The ancient rabbis put it this way. Commandments were only given to refine humanity. What does God care about what you eat? God doesn't care. God's God. I mean, that doesn't affect God what you eat. It is given for your refinement, which is fascinating. So foreign to us Christians, right? And thinking about these laws. But... In the Hebrew Bible's ethical system, food laws are the fundamental ethical command. 
eating well is the cornerstone of living a moral life in the Hebrew Bible. These food prohibitions that help us, that, that, that are the main way that we figure out what it means to live a good life in the Hebrew Bible. But, and there's something profound about this because eating is perfectly set up for this task. Eating is something we do multiple times every single day of our life, right? And so if the very way we eat teaches us how to respect life and the value and the dignity of other living beings, and we learn it over and over and over and over and over every single time we eat, then we start to internalize that. It starts moving from our head down into our gut, into a very being, and starts getting embedded there. And it starts being woven into the very way we live, the very way we exist. We get way deep down this message that animals do not exist solely for us to exploit them. We can't just kill them off willy-nilly for their pelts or their tusks or their blubber or their feathers. We are not masters of them. Rather, Leviticus tries to get through our thick heads this respect for all living things that when we do need to kill an animal, we do it humanely, that we minimize their suffering, that we are seeing all things as part of God's good creation and therefore worthy of our respect and care, realizing the value of life wherever it is found. So this week, I challenge you to take a look at what values you are internalizing through your eating. May you become ever more aware of how the smallest of actions can teach you profound lessons about what it means to faithfully follow God. May it be so.